Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to see you guys and to worship the Lord. God willing, we'll be mask-free next week, so we'll wait and see. We'll, we'll wait on that one. Uh, but what a joy. We had a great time last night at the men's meetup. It was great. There was brisket, which was good. Some many good offerings that people brought. So thank you for all who contributed for those who came and supplied food and it was a great time of fellowship and sharing. So we'll be in Job 24, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are glorious and supreme, that you reign forevermore, that you are the God who created all things, the one who gives us life, the one who is wisdom for us, the one who helps us and guides us into all truth. Thank you for... Uh, your word and your power and your, your ability to save and that the brokenhearted can be made whole, that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who uh, weep, Lord, um, will rejoice, that you'll turn that, that sorrow into joy. And just thank you for the promises that we have in you, that we see only the edges of your ways and uh, it is glorious what we see and what we know of you. And we rejoice in you as our King, as our Lord. And we pray that you would speak to us and minister your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've concluded that expending energy, comparing ourselves with ourselves, leads to nowhere good. Uh, and that's not really my idea, that's from the scripture. Um, Paul had talked about making judgments based on outward appearances and that it is foolish. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So it's unwise to do that. Um, the Corinthians were very much like Lady Catherine in Pride and Prejudice who was visiting and said with disdain, you have a small park here because her ladyship had obviously seen greater gardens where she lived. And we adopt a humble posture, not by comparing ourselves with others, but by looking to God and seeing how glorious and good he is. It's, it's fine if you're learning a skill like tying your shoes or learning how to paint a wall or to frost a cake that you compare and you say, am I doing what my teacher is doing? Am I following their example? But it's another thing when you are comparing your results with their results and making a judgment on their character, their ability, because yours seem better. And so we can be puffed up with pride that we, we are doing a good job and we're really superior to others, or we can criticize ourselves and be frustrated with the injustice that we're trying really hard and they are getting the results we want. So it provokes covetousness in us and envy. Comparing ourselves with others it leads nowhere good. Job's halfway through his response to Eliphaz in our passage today. He looked at Job's suffering and said it was evidence of God's judgment for his sinning. Job sought the Lord. He wasn't able to find him. He wasn't able to see him working in his situation. But he knew that God knew about him, that God knew what he was doing. And for some reason, unknown to Job, God had prescribed this terrible trial. And it's like he needed to take his medicine. 
By faith, he knew he would come through his gold, but he didn't understand why it was happening. And he would look around, and he, he compared himself with others and the things that they did where they were living unrighteously, and they seemed to prosper. He had followed God and served him, and now he was suffering. And he was trying to weigh, like, how and why is this happening? He's like, I, I can't see God at work, but I do notice other people and how they're sinning and prospering. So why is this the case? Knowing God is far more important than having our whys and hows answered. Knowing him, knowing because he is good and he is trustworthy and we can rely upon him. So we pick up Job's uh, response in Job 24 verse 1. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked, without clothing, and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Job was convinced that the Almighty God knows and sees all things, and nothing's hidden from him. So if Job was being punished for sins unknown to him, why did God seem indifferent to the obvious sinfulness and suffering of others? So he's like, why is this the case? How can this be? Because the God that saw his every step knew the actions and the motivations of the wicked, and he starts to list ways that people would uh, oppress one another and how the rich would profit, where it says uh, moving landmarks, and a landmark would be a tree or a stake or a rock or a stream, and they would move that landmark to enlarge their territory and to rob someone of their inheritance. He says that they seized flocks and ate from them. They drove away working animals from the fatherless and widow, and those groups were very oppressed and marginalized in that society because they had no powerful friends in high places that could bail them out, that could help them. And so people knew they could get away with it, and so they used it to their advantage. They had no recourse Job had witnessed this sinful conduct. He had done everything he could to help, but the problem was way bigger than his ability to solve it. Because we'll see later that he did address the, the, the fatherless and the widow and the naked and the hungry, and he did what he could to help them and provide hospitality for them. God knew of every injustice. Why didn't he bring justice? Why didn't he bring judgment upon them? Because they were all saying that, Job, you're suffering because you're being judged by God for your sin. Later in his response, he would talk about his sacrifices, and he went far beyond any moral obligation to help others. But the fundamental question behind Job's wonderings is, why me? Have you guys ever asked that? Or maybe that was the bottom line of what you were getting at. Why am I suffering and the wicked prospering. And really, this why question, we can only receive an answer when we have faith in God, in his goodness, in his righteousness. Have you always been satisfied with an answer you receive when you ask why? 
Like, why? And they're like, well, this. And you're like, come on, that, that is ridiculous. I do not accept that. I cannot accept that. But if you think of a child, when they say, well, why? Why is that happening? The parent says, well, because of this. Or, because I said so. He may not like it, but the child will accept it because of who their parent is. And they'll repeat it. Well, it's because of this. So they receive that by faith in their parent, in the one who spoke to them. So they'll receive that why question, the answer to it. And uh, when we have that why question, well, why does God allow this? Why didn't God do this? Why did he do this instead of that? And we start climbing up into his judgment seat to decide what God should do instead of trusting him and receiving from his hand both good and what we would say is bad. But he has purposes in all parts of our lives to glorify himself and to grow us in our faith. Job 24, verse 9, he continues his list. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is, as the, is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death has this growing list of atrocities committed by people who are emboldened by neg- the lack of negative consequences. He's saying, well, some remove the landmark, some snatch the child from his own mother, you know, stealing and kidnapping. Uh, clothes that were left as collateral for uh, a, like a loan, for a tool that was used, or they were not given back, and so people were going without their clothing and were were freezing in the cold. They were uncovered. People were starving. They're producing food for the wealthy, right? They're, they're stomping out their grapes and uh, filling their vats with oil, but they themselves are going hungry and thirsty because their wages are withheld. And it says they're like suffering wounds. They're crying out. And it seemed that God wasn't charging the guilty with wrong. So if Job was suffering for sin, why didn't these oppressors suffer for their sin? He's not pointing out the injustice of God here. He's showing the weakness of their argument or the fatal flaw in it to suggest that his suffering was only due to his sin because there were some on the flip side who profited, who prospered in their unrighteousness. So he is laying out this logical response to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that this attack on me personally... It's that is unjust. And he observed how people rebelled against the light. They shamelessly murdered people in broad daylight. And they avoid, they really ignored the light of the conscience God's given everyone, this knowledge of right and wrong. They committed crimes under the cover of darkness. They stole goods. They stole wives through adultery. They disguised their faces to get away with murder. They scoped out the houses during the day and they returned at night to rob. They refuse to come into the light and repent. Think of light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God revealed himself through his word to us. 
And the, the light of the world has come, Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches man chose to rebel against God in his ways, that our hearts are filled with hatred and murder and thefts, adultery, fornication. Man has not changed at all. He has not improved himself. He still is desperately wicked and needs forgiveness and salvation. That's only found through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have illumination that Job and his friends did not have because the gospel has been revealed through Jesus. Um, Not to condemn, but to save. As Jesus said in John 3, 19 through 21, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. It's a good thing for us to ask ourselves, do I prefer the darkness or the light? Do I want to have my acts concealed or am I willing to come right into the open as I am to confess my sin and to uh, receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus? The sinners that Job spoke of, they were condemned by their crimes. The one who does not come to the light and abides in darkness is walking against the truth of God. And so it's great to know there's no shame to be walking in the light. There's no shame at all there. There's no guilt because we are uh, walking righteously, uprightly in God's ways. And when the light of God's word and his conviction reveal sin in our lives, will we confess it? Will we forsake it? Will we come into the light and remain in the light? Or will we go running off into darkness? So that's a good uh, exhortation for us all, to walk in the light, to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Job continues in verse 18, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more, and wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who do not bear, and does no good for the widow. When Adam sinned by disobeying God and eating the fruit that was forbidden from the tree, sin brought a curse that resulted in death. This was a spiritual separation between God and man, ultimately ending with the death of the body, right? And then our souls um, going to hell where we are, there is a punishment for our sin forever. And Job recognized that the, the prosperity of the wicked would not endure, that, that that is the end of what they deserve, right? That the soul that sins will surely die. And he agrees with God's word here Like a leaf that's swept downstream and is lost in the current, so is the end of the wicked. They will not be remembered. The womb will forget him. It's like the worms will be the end of them. The the jet-setting millionaire who evades governments for a season can never outrun or outwit God who will judge him and put him in the grave. And that will be the end of him. He will be forgotten. I like what David wrote in Psalm 37, 35, and 36. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. And I like the comparison to this 
native green tree. It's not a transplant. It's one that grows naturally in the region. It's suited for the climate. It, everything, it's like in his element. Uh, in a world steeped with sin, a sinner is at home in his element. This is the sinner's element, where we are now, where there is darkness where you can hide, where there are ways that you can use the law to justify breaking the law. And you can get away with things and uh, choose to, to go your own way and prosper knowing how to work the system to your advantage, to cover your tracks. And so we learn to lie, to blame and manipulate others for, per, for personal gain. And it's as easy for us to do as breathing or walking. I'm like think, well, it's not always easy for people to breathe. It's not always easy for people to walk, but it's as easy as anything is for you to do, the thing that you don't even need to think to do or practice that you're very good at, um, that is how we are with sin. We learn to manipulate. We learn that we, we believe the end can justify the means. So deceit, envy, selfishness, lust, these things are all natural for us in our flesh. And we can even adapt religious activity for our own benefit rather than the glory of God. So we can take a good thing and we can distort it and twist it. And, and the Jews did this with the law. They took the law that was designed to show man's sinfulness and they did it to promote their own righteousness and to show how good they were and to compare themselves with others about how, how righteous they were when they avoided the whole purpose of the law, which was to bring the knowledge of sin and to shut the mouth from justifying yourself. That the whole world might be guilty before God, as it says in Romans chapter 3. Jesus called the Pharisees out for this, who made God's law of no effect by their tradition. He pointed out their hypocrisy. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all white and clean on the outside, but on the inside you're full of filthiness and dead men's bones. Sin's curse, it causes men to go to the grave and be forgotten. Think of Absalom. He, he built a monument for himself. He didn't have any sons, and so he's like, well, I want to be remembered. I won't be remembered through my progeny, but I can build a nice monument to myself where I'll be buried, and he, he never was buried there. He was executed out on the battlefield, and his corpse thrown under a pile of rocks. And this is the cause and effect that Job is hammering home. They had been hammering him with, you've sinned, this is God's judgment upon you, confess and repent. But Job knew that it was God doing this for a reason unknown to him, that he had searched his heart, that he had confessed sin. And then he's like, but the real cause and effect is the soul that sins will die. The wicked will go to the grave. So God will bring judgment upon all people. God will bring the wicked to nothing, consuming them as the sun evaporates snow. But for the oppressed soul, really, if you're the one who is oppressed, if you're the one who's being misused, there is great comfort for you here because God, who condemns sinners and judges the wicked, will vindicate those who trust in Him, who cry out to Him. He hears your cries. He knows what's going on. He knows when you're innocent of what you've been accused of. He hears, he knows you, and he knows those who seek and trust him, if you're relying upon him or not. And he's faithful to remember and to save those 
forever according to his mercy, that hope in him. So what comfort there is for those who walk in the light here? Because we've come into the light that is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And there is hope and comfort and rest because though our bodies will go to the grave, we will never taste death. We will never be separate from God because he has united us with himself through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. That's awesome. Picking up in verse 22. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security, and they rely upon it. Yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while. Then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? You guys ever watch the uh, World's Strongest Man competition? I don't know if it's a guy thing or not, but I, I enjoyed it as a kid watching these international athletes, these big brutes, you know, haul these trucks around and push anchors over. And they have like, you know, carrying cars, pulling ships, doing crazy stunts where you're like, wow, that's really amazing that someone could do that. Squatting cars, you know, chucking this weighted keg over a four-meter wall and all racing against time and one another. And no matter if you've been crowned the world's strongest man one year, it doesn't mean you're going to be the strongest next year. And ultimately, a day will come when you can't compete at that level. The body is just spent. And uh, you might be broadcasting, maybe. But the strongest man will go to the grave. Even on the day of competition, no man is sure of life. Job points that out. No man is sure of life. We look forward to a date on the calendar and we say, I'm looking forward to this day or this opportunity. But you're not even sure of life. And we find security in the fact that we live, that we can do. And we have this job. And we have this family structure. We have this house or we have this money. And we put all of our comfort or we find much comfort in what is not secure, what is not God. God makes a man strong like Samson, and what did Samson do? He relied on his own strength. He said, I will rise as at other times and deliver myself from the Philistines. But it was God who had helped him all those other times. But he, he found security in himself and his own strength. And we all can do this. You don't need to have superhuman strength to rely on yourself or something other than God. Don't you invest a lot of effort in finding security in this life? Just think about it for a second. Where you find security. You look at the numbers of your super. You could feel secure or a little insecure because you're like, hmm, that's not heading in the right direction. I don't feel comfortable with this trend. Looking at the market and you put a lot into Bitcoin and then, you know, falls. Hmm, maybe that wasn't the best investment after all. You want job security. You want home security. You've got monitoring equipment. You want uh, financial security. All these things that we value. We want our communications encrypted. We want our passwords protected. We don't want to be made vulnerable. We don't want people to know how to access our accounts or our information. We don't want people spying on us. 
But all the security we have comes from God. He is our security. He is the one who holds us, who protects us, who guards us, who guides us, who knows where we are and where he's bringing us and how he's going to get us there. His eyes are on all of our ways and it would be foolish to rely upon something other than God for security when he is our all in all. He is our life. Many people have reigned in positions of power and it was only for a season. The most powerful rulers of all time likely are not ruling anymore. They have gone the way of the earth. All have been brought to the grave by the Almighty God who gives and who takes away, as Job said. And God is generous and he is gracious to offer eternal life to all who trust in him. So, brothers and sisters, are you finding your security in Christ, in God, in his word? Nothing that's been made in the universe is eternal or everlasting. Permanent ink. You, you can get that off. Use a solvent. You can remove it. Uh, the great stones of the temple of Jerusalem. They were mighty stones. They were great. They took, it was a magnificent feat to get them there, but they were broken down into rubble. The sun and the stars, they will only shine for a short season in light of eternity. How foolish we think that there could be security found on this earth that is insecure, that will fade away, that will be lost forever. Everything on it. But there is security in God. We have assured eternal life through faith in Jesus. Like that is amazing that we can have an, a certainty of eternity with God in his presence and in his favor. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 5, 11 through 13. The contracts that you sign for insurance or for a home, they could be hundreds of pages long with all these, um, I don't even know, caveats, rules. You, you, it used to be you'd see an ad and there'd be a lot of fine print at the bottom. You're like, pausing the screen like, I can't even read that. It's so tiny. Like, what, is, what am I missing here? Because there's a, there's a, you know, save 50% off. But is it saying only on selected items during this day at this time? And if you're over the age of whatever and you have, a, you have an account with this group and you, and you, you know, with $500 spend and you just keep going on and on. And like, well, I'm excluded now. The more I read, the, the less I feel sure that this is a good deal. But there are no caveats with, the salvation that God offers through Jesus. Just his condition of faith in him. 1 John 5, 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. We can know we have eternal life and we ought to continue believing in Jesus. Not just believe to be converted and come to him, but to keep believing in him, that our life is in him. He is our life. Jesus shed his own blood so we could be forgiven from sin. We could be free of that curse. We can live forever with him in glory. Under the law of Moses, the life, it said, was in the blood. Well, under the gospel, the life is in Christ. 
The life is in him, eternal life. We come to Jesus believing he is the Christ, the Son of God who died and rose from the dead, and we continue believing and living according to that faith. Even when it's hard, even when we don't know why things are happening. Job finished his statement with a challenge to his friends. He knew that they could not contradict anything he said because they had already said as much that God does judge the wicked. Um, And he agreed that God is the righteous judge. He brings all people to the grave. And he says, now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? Now we come to Bildad's response in Job 25.1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? This is his third and final address. It's really a brief last gasp to assert the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. This is something they've been repeating over and over. And the issue was they were trying to plug Job into the wicked man category when God had said he is a righteous and upright man. These things Job agreed with. He did not deny that what he was saying was correct. God's dominion is over all. There's no created thing that can be compared to him in power and righteousness. And instead of directly attacking Job and saying, well, you've done this and you've done that without evidence, he just insinuates, well, well, you're justifying yourself, but how could anyone be righteous before God? You know, we're worms compared to him, maggots. He's the clean one. The, the moon has no light of its own. How can we claim to be in the light? And, and he's, remember Job's skin, it's all cracked and he has worms. So he's kind of saying, see, like you're worms. It's like how we are compared to God. Like we're nothing compared to him. We're, we're refuse. The rhetorical questions that he asks, though, aren't, don't they have an answer that we find in Jesus? Where he says, how can a man be righteous before God? Like, hmm, I don't know. They would say in that day. They could have answers like, well, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to avoid this or avoid that. We find it answered in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes a man righteous before God through the gospel. We can enter eternal life by righteousness, by grace, through faith. If you turn in your Bibles to Romans 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 22, we read of Abraham's faith in God before the law was given. There were people that, as previously stated, would try to gain righteousness or earn righteousness through keeping the law. And he refuted that idea by saying, Abraham was declared righteous by God before the law. And so we see that faith comes by being, righteousness comes by faith, not by performance or what you do. And he says in Romans 4 verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was written, not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, 
who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the, in the hope of the glory of God. So faith in Jesus who died and rose again, that is how righteousness is imputed or credited to us through faith. And we are justified in God's sight by faith in him. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they failed completely in their attempts to comfort Job. And we can look back and, and observe and take note of the things that they said. They, they didn't listen to him with sympathy. They ignored his feelings. They assumed the worst about him, that he was the culprit for his suffering. They did not pray for him. They, didn't, uh, they continued to argue with him. They judged him. They condemned him. Their theology did not take into account God's grace and love at all, his mercy. And so they, uh, they accused him with evidence without any... I mean, they, they accused him of uh, sin without any evidence, and their assumptions were incorrect. And it's good for us to say we have all fallen into these traps. We have done this. It's not like, oh, I got to be careful that I don't do that. I know that he did that, she did that, Bildad did that. No, we all have done this. And this is for our learning, that we would avoid those errors. Sometimes from the Bible we learn what to do, sometimes what not to do. And sometimes we have to be in the doing wrong category before we have conviction for sin and we're broken for it and recognize our need to be led and empowered to walk in God's ways. Job's answer now in chapter 26, verse 1. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How, many ha have, how have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? The fact that Job and his friends were still not seeing eye to eye is evident in the very first word of the chapter. It says, but Job said. So there's this opposition. There's this argument still going on. They have not yet agreed to disagree. Job had previously compared them to worthless physicians or miserable comforters, like your doctors who can't help promote healing and if you came to comfort me, you certainly have failed completely to do so because uh, you're just stirring me up. You're grieving my spirit. And he sarcastically takes aim at Bildad's credibility. He says, have you ever actually helped anybody by the things that you said? Have you, like, done anything good for anyone who was suffering before? Like, advice they received and walked in, their life was actually better for it? There's definitely a lot of sarcasm here. And I like what Matthew Henry said, to one that was humbled and broken as Job was, he ought to have preached of the grace and mercy of God rather than of his greatness and majesty. Job asks him, what troubled soul would ever have been revived and relieved and brought to itself by such discourses as these? We can have a very high opinion of our advice. And perhaps Zophar, Eliphaz, and Bildad were of that kind. They're like, I know what to do. You're like, just do this. But no matter how wise we consider our advice to be, there are limits to its usefulness because we cannot, by our wisdom, 
heal a broken heart. We cannot comfort a wounded soul by something that comes from me. It must come from the Lord. So it's his word that is comforting. He lifts those who are cast down. He offers enduring comfort to those who mourn. Like that's his work. And it's awesome that he does enable us to be part of that process, to offer words of comfort and hope and hope that's beyond our ability. It's from the wisdom and knowledge of God. So only God has the power to change lives for good. Job continues in verse 5, The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Job speaks about the awesome authority, power, and supremacy of God, and his friends had said, you don't, you're, you're a guy who doesn't even know God, Job. But Job in his, his answer here shows he does know God, and he knows him very well. Even the dead tremble before him because he is the judge of the living and the dead. Those awaiting judgment that we cannot see are seen and known by him. Like God knows what we cannot know. This word destruction, it's Abaddon, which is the realm of the dead. And we'll see throughout this scripture and throughout a lot of the book of Job, you see a lot of Hebrew poetry where there's parallelism. It's just repeating of the same thing again. Uh, so that's synonymous parallelism. Uh, and, and he talks about what God has done that no person can do. He talks of God suspending the earth from the north over empty space. It's not supported by ropes or by some crude structure underneath. McGee wrote this, Remember that Job lived back in the age of the patriarchs, and yet this man knew that the earth is hanging out in space, that God suspends the huge ball of earth in space with nothing to support it, but his own fixed laws is a concept unknown to ancient astronomers. We have a lot of pictures in our houses, probably. I know we have several in our house. And thus, they're all hanging on something. And even a wall alone is not enough to get a picture to stay where you want it. You have to put a nail in the plasterboard or in the, you know, a screw, a nail in the bricks. Um, and in stark contrast, God hangs the earth on nothing. The earth, this big, massive planet that we live on. It's truly amazing. So I want to draw your attention to the Australian icon, the hill's hoist, for a moment. That is ample evidence of God's superiority over man. Pretty much every backyard I've been in, in Australia, has a clothesline. And we use them to dry the washing. And we do the washing because things get dirty. Right? So you get, it gets dirty, you go outside, and you hang up the socks and the shirts and the everything up there. And God hangs the earth on nothing. Like a pair of socks, I need something to hang those on. You compare the earth to a pair of socks, you just go, <laughs> how does God do that? He is so awesome. 
God is pure and holy. He is the Lamb of God, Jesus was called, who is without blemish and without spot. He is the all-clean one all the time. He was hung on Calvary. He was nailed to a cross so that we could be clothed in righteousness in clothing that does not grow uh, dirty because it's his righteousness upon us. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation and forgiveness, those are impossible for us. But God hangs the earth on nothing. He does things that we cannot do. God does so many things that amaze, and he starts weighing into them here. He's like, God suspends water in the clouds that are puffy in the sky, and yet they're not torn by them. It doesn't get so weighty that they rip apart. We can have telescopes that see distant planets, and we can land a rover on Mars, but God conceals his throne like you don't see it. We can see so far, but we can't see him, and he's able to conceal himself. And he drew, drew this circular horizon. He's marked out the curvature of the earth, where the horizon where land and uh, light meet. And he causes the heavens to shake. He stirs up the sea with his power. And verse 12, it's a bit tricky because depending on your translation, the rendering is quite different. We, we have storm in the New King James. It's proud in the King James Version and Rahab in the NIV. And Rahab is a term used for Egypt in Isaiah 51, 9, and 10. It says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So there's quite a parallel between what Isaiah says and what Job is saying. And all those interpretations or translations ring true. They're all true. Uh, they just point out a different aspect of God, that he can bring down the proud. He can break up a storm. Like Jesus said, peace be still. And the storm ceased from raging. And the disciples are like, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the God can, God can cut his enemies to pieces. He can divide the Red Sea and cause his people to walk through. By his spirit, it says, he adorned the heavens and hangs the earth on nothing. It's like every one of those Christmas ornaments you put on the tree, it needs a way to hang or else it's not going to stay there. And no matter how well you've done, you come in in the morning and the cat's been around and, and half the ornaments are on the ground. You're like, I hung those already, but they don't stay there. Well, the Lord has hung the earth on nothing and it continues there until he says it is enough. Verse 14, Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Compared to God, what can we do? What can we know? What can we say compared to him? The amazing, miraculous things that God does, like hanging the earth on nothing, concealing his throne, stirring the seas, he says they're the mere edges of his ways. And I looked at that word edges. It means fringes, the scrapings, the offcuts of his abilities. What do you do with offcuts or scrapings, right? You're scraping wood, fine dust, you just chuck it, right? He's like, those awesome things that we see God doing in nature, 
the mere edges of his ways, the offcuts, the scrapings. We can just see, we can catch a little glimpse of his work. We, we know so little of him because he is so awesome, so amazing. The creation of the earth, the establishing of its orbit, adorning the heavens, those are the scraps of what God does. And what a mind-blowing thing to the things that we marvel over. We're like, wow, how amazing that God could do that. And it's like, well, that's the scraps of what God is. And we hear, and he said, he's like, God is so glorious and mighty, yet we hear so little of him. He speaks in a still small voice. And we hear more about COVID or the Kardashians and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Like, how is this the case where we have such a glorious God and yet he conceals himself and reveals himself to those who trust in him, the ones who humble themselves. And he gives us the faith to do that. And then he says, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And the other day we did have a bit of a thunderstorm in our area and the lightning was quite above the clouds. We couldn't see it, but there was some thunder that just went across the sky and rattled the house. It was pretty powerful. And uh, yeah, if you want some really interesting footage, I didn't know this. I thought we knew pretty much all there was to know about lightning, but that's not correct. Um, we may know more about lightning than Job did, but in the last 10 years, there's been huge advances because of slow-mo cameras and stuff. And if you want some really interesting footage, watch some slow-motion stuff on lightning. It's wild what they come up with. And in the words of the scientists, they are still unraveling the mystery of lightning that causes thunder. So we... We just see the edges of his ways. He is so glorious. To answer Job's question, no one can completely understand the things God does, and we can't fully understand him either, as we are. But praise be to God, we can know him who's created us, who has such great power, and how the fringes of his ways are beyond comparing wisdom, power, and glory. I continued on. If you want to turn there in Psalm 37, verse 37, we'll close with this verse. I had quoted from Psalms 37 earlier. The God who hangs the earth on nothing, he is our strength, he is our help and our salvation. As David wrote in Psalm 37, 37 through 40, mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. I love how this is written very objectively. It's not like he might help out. There might be some assistance. It's like he will save he will hear, he will deliver, he will help because they trust in him. And there was comfort for Job, though he didn't see what God was doing. He didn't know how he was working. There's salvation and deliverance for you even if you can't see it. You can't perceive it. Creating the heavens and the earth, the edges of God's ways, who's revealed himself to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is our all in all. So let's praise him. Let's thank him. Let's find our security in him rather than on ourselves and just glorify him in light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. 
We praise you, Lord, that we see just the edges of your ways, and you are glorious. You are awesome. And we thank you for the salvation and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and for the light that you have caused to shine upon us through the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to keep your word to us, that the things that are impossible for us to do, you do without trouble, because your arm is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is your ear um, unable to hear. Show us, Lord, when our sins have separated us from you, that we would cry out, that we would seek you, that we would place our hope in you and not in ourselves, um, in our own efforts to find you. Thank you, Lord. You have revealed yourself. You have caused your light to shine. You have offered salvation by your grace through faith in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that we would seek you. And thank you that you've promised we will find you if we seek you with our whole hearts. And I thank you, Lord, for the comfort there is in your word and for the lessons we can learn from Job and his friends and that we would uh, look to you with, with reverence, thanksgiving, and trust, knowing you are glorious and good. In Jesus' name, amen.